This is episode 199 of That Shakespeare Life. Find video versions of our show, including archival images and other visual content we're not able to share on the audio of our podcast, streaming right now along with documentaries, animated plays, and virtual tours from the life of William Shakespeare inside the digital streaming app for That Shakespeare Life. Find more at castycash.com slash APP and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Alex Lyon. I'm a Shakespearean actor. I work at the Clink Prison Museum and I made my own film of Macbeth in my hometown of Kidsgrove. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Brewers would produce the beer in Baton put it in barrels, ship it on wagons or barrel or wheelbarrows to uh, pubs. And the, the publican would then have us tap the barrel, put a spigot in it and fill a pitcher. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it. Learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Shakespeare references beer in his works six times, drawing attention to specific kinds of beer like small beer, double beer, and even one reference in Hamlet to beer barrels, where the Prince of Denmark suggests that beer barrels had a stopper to keep them sealed. Drinking beer in Shakespeare's lifetime was almost as regular as drinking water is today. So whenever you were thirsty, drinks like ale, beer, and spirits were much more common. This beer drinking reality means that there was a strong economy for beer making and distilling in Elizabethan England, including unique storage methods, containers, and even some versions of beer like small and double beer that are obsolete today. To find out exactly what the state, varieties, and industry was behind beer for Shakespeare, we've invited our guest this week, Richard Unger, expert in beer making of Elizabethan England and author of the book Beer in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, to help us explore the history of how beer was made for the life of William Shakespeare. Richard Unger was trained as an economic historian. He is now Professor Emeritus in the History Department of the University of British Columbia, where he taught for four decades. He has published extensively on the history of medieval and early modern shipbuilding and shipping, on the history of Renaissance cartography, energy consumption in Canada in the last two centuries, and on medieval and Renaissance brewing in Europe, and especially in the Netherlands and England. For example, among other publications are Beer in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and expected this year, Beer and taxes the fiscal significance for Holland and England in the 17th and 18th centuries. Find more about Richard Unger as well as links to his books and publications in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Richard. Welcome to the show. Thank you. What ingredients were used in making beer for Shakespeare's lifetime? In England, uh, the principal uh, uh, grain was barley. That was always true. In fact, uh, English brewers preferred barley over almost all other grains, unlike on the continent where you get much greater variety. But, you know, you can make beer from almost anything, uh, any vegetable matter. So um, they would mix and match uh, grains. Uh, They'd use um, wheat, but in small proportions. Uh, This is in England. 
they would also use oats, although oats does take a little, it's a little more difficult to deal with. So barley was the common grain. The yeast, they'd uh, use uh, brewer's yeast, which they keep around and store and dry and then activate it uh, when it came time to uh, ferment the beer. And uh, hops, which uh, they were beginning to grow, uh, were imported in England for a long time. But uh, by the 16th, by Shakespeare's time, they were growing hops uh, in fields uh, in different places, especially in Kent. And so, and that was pretty much it. They uh, might add some other sweetener. In essence, it was it was barley and yeast, water, uh, and hops. We know that alcohol was consumed copiously during Shakespeare's lifetime, with drinks like ale or beer being known even as morning beverages to start the day in the early modern England. When it came to providing this beer in these amounts with such a daily consumption, Richard, who was primarily responsible for making the beer in the first place? Would the ingredients have been grown in something like a kitchen garden per household, or would beer have been something that was available commercially, like you had to go and buy it somewhere and bring it home? A lot of beer was made domestically. Uh, when people lived in villages, the um, housewives would uh, produce uh, beer for their own family. And with uh, some would make, if they had some extra left over, they'd sell it. And some women would even become professional beer makers and sell it through their, out from their, from their houses. But uh, when towns began to, get, began to get larger, commercial brewing became impossible and became the norm. And in London, in Shakespeare's time, uh, there was a sizable brewing industry with some major brewers who produced large quantities of beer uh, by, uh, in 1585. So, you know, when Shakespeare was a young man, London brewers were sold both about 106 million, 106 million liters of uh, beer. So that's uh, 200 million pints of beer. It's, or let me see, 300 million cans of beer. <laughs> Except there were no cans, but <laughs> so about that time there were 26 big brewers in London, and they were each churning out about an average of 3.2 million liters each one of them. So these are big, large-scale operations. They're churning out about 62,000. So in other words, 100, over 100,000 pints of beer a week, and they'd be using something like 50 tons of grain every week to produce that beer. So. Uh, yeah, they're big commercial operations, and they'd supply uh, individuals, but even more than that, they'd supply um, pubs or drinking houses or inns, some kind of a place where people could go and, and drink beer. In you know, there are a couple hundred thousand people living in London, so there's a sizable market for beer, and in a concentrated area. Uh, one of the reasons people didn't make beer at home was because uh, they just didn't have the room. You need space. Big kettles and grain, able to store grain. So the big brewers would do that. And also, London, in fact, was a, a center for export of beer, too. They uh, uh, shipped uh, hundreds, of, hundreds of thousands of liters of beer out of the country every year, mostly to the low countries, to what is now Belgium and the Netherlands, but to other markets as well. Oh, yeah. And uh, because uh, beer drinking was popular, there was one pub for about every 200 people in England, in Shakespeare's time. In London, it was probably even more. 
Now, you mentioned that there weren't cans of beer, and we know that tankards of ale were popular at places of business, like a local tavern, for example. But for someone drinking beer at a local establishment, what would the beer have been contained in? Was it a glass bottle, or did they just dip their tankard into a beer barrel to get their drink? No bottles. In fact, glass was um, relatively recent developments. That is, um, that's one of the reasons people had lots of windows. In, uh, exclusive houses, houses in the countryside uh, and even the city, they'd have glass windows, which is something that wasn't really possible in the Middle Ages. But now they could produce decent quality glass. Yes, some people would drink beer out of a glass, but it was uh, not very common. Uh, and if they did have glasses, the glasses would have bumps on them, sort of little extensions, uh, so that uh, they, the glass wouldn't slip out of their hand, especially if they were eating greasy food. But uh, no, more commonly, yes, it was tankards uh, made with probably made of pewter or I guess what we call steins. That is um, ceramic containers with a handle and with or without a top. The top was not absolutely necessary, of course. And the beer would, the brewers would produce the beer and put it in barrels, ship it on wagons or barrel or wheelbarrows to uh, pubs. And the, the publican would then have us tap the barrel, put a spigot in it, and fill a pitcher with a ceramic pitcher with beer. And then the ceramic pitcher would be would be used by the server who would go around and fill up the, the tankard or the bowl. Uh, in the early part of the 16th century, wooden bowls were common. Small, shallow wooden bowls would be used to drink beer. And those hadn't disappeared entirely by Shakespeare's time. That's not unlike how we think of coffee being distributed at a cafe or a diner today, where you've got the big vat and then someone takes a pitcher around and dispenses it. So beer was, and I, I mentioned that because coffee was, is kind of a, a common beverage the way beer was when Shakespeare was alive. So it's, it's interesting that the delivery method no, you're, was similar. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, it was when coffee became inexpensive, which was, um, well, let's see, about 200 years after uh, uh, Shakespeare died. Is that right? No, about 100 years after Shakespeare died and gradually uh, began to spread in use, people stopped, drank less beer. Beer consumption went down and coffee consumption went up, coffee and tea and cocoa. So in the 18th century, there was a, a significant decline in beer, beer consumption per person. Now, when it came to storing beer for the long term, so not not to dispense it at a tavern, but if you wanted to keep it, what would it have it been stored in, and and how would those containers have been sealed? Yeah, it was in barrels, and indeed, uh, some brewers had the large brewers would have had barrel uh, shops, barrel makers on staff to produce barrels for them, and the barrels would be of varying sizes. Uh, although there are regulations about specific sizes, they were you know, very small, a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, very big, and very, very big. And uh, the very big ones would be uh, kept in the breweries or in uh, pubs, but people would have smaller kegs in their houses. They'd be sealed with a stopper, a wooden stopper, and uh, then opened, or as I say, tapped with a spigot when it came time to. Uh, Drink from the take beer from the barrel. Well, there's a difference in the types of beer. 
were consumed. It's a problem about the word beer. There's one reference in Henry VI where one neighbor offers his fellow neighbor a, quote, good pot of double beer, end quote. That comes from Act Two, Scene Three in Henry VI. Richard, what is a double beer and why was double beer kept in pots instead of the barrels that you mentioned? Oh, well, the pot thing, um, I think, is just um, just means uh, a container. Like, uh, uh, you know, we talk about uh, jars of beer now, and it's not really a jar. It's just a glass that shaped for something like a jar. Pot would have been used for almost any container for any, any liquid. Uh, and the pot would have been probably some drinking vessel. Uh, some sort of slang term, kind of slang term for a drinking vessel. No, the the beer would be would come from a barrel and then go into a container, either you know a single container for one drink, but more likely into a pitcher. The um, and again, people wouldn't keep beer for very long, in part because it depended on the kind of beer, which double beer meant uh, a stronger beer. There were all kind, there were different names for different kinds of beer partially for advertising reasons. They give them fancy names. But uh, in England, it was more a very specific matter having to do, well, mostly associated with price. Brewers would make, would malt grain and then boil it in water to extract vegetable matter and then put in a brew kettle with some kind of preservative and from that, they'd extract a, well, it wasn't quite beer yet. Uh, they would then put that into a fermentation trough, put yeast in, and it would come out as beer. So they had this grain, this malt, that they had used for the first round. And it was still sitting there, still some vegetable matter. So they put water on it, boil it again, push that in the brew kettle, brew it with hops, with some preservative, I should say, and then put it in fermentation troughs and get a weaker beer because it had less vegetable matter. Then they do it again, and they get a third round uh, of beer, but it would be much, much weaker. So there were three, in essence, three. Sometimes they try it for a fourth time. That was, that was pushing it. So they'd end up with a beer that was strong, a beer that was not so strong, and a beer that was very that was weak. And so there, there would be different classifications for those. Double, double meant it was a very strong beer. A double would have been a strong beer. A double, double would probably have a higher amount of grain used for each uh, liter of water. But double would be probably the standard strong beer. And then there would be a, probably it would be a strong beer. Then there would be a weaker beer. And then, of course, the third kind would be small beer. And small beer, which comes up in several of Shakespeare's plays, is the kind that is the weakest? Yes, that's right. And would be the least expensive and uh, probably not taxed. Now, twice in Henry IV, once in Henry VI, and once in Othello, Shakespeare does use this phrase, small beer. And the reference in Henry VI Act Four was that Jack Cade declares he will make it a felony to drink small beer. Richard, is this a joke on small beer because it's so weak, it's considered bad or not useful? It's um, a sign of, well, I guess a sign of, well, it's poor nutrition, right? Because you don't get many nutrients out of this stuff. So I think what he's saying is when I get to be boss, nobody's going to be have to drink that, that stuff. 
uh, that low-grade stuff. They're going to have good quality beer. He's, um, it would be a poor man's drink or a child, a kid's drink or a drink for sick people. Now, I've read that there was a shift in beer fermentation that happened between Shakespeare's lifetime and today to change from what's called top fermented beers to today, bottom fermented beers are more popular. Richard, would you explain for us the difference in top fermented versus bottom fermented beers? It's a different kind of yeast, different strain of yeast. And it was, and top fermented was the norm, the standard uh, for a long, long time. The um, except in places like um, uh, in southern Germany, which by the way was wine country through most of the Middle Ages, but around the 15th, 14th, 15th centuries, they began to produce uh, beer and in sizable quantities. And the top fermented, and they would uh, use the sea strain, which would fall to the bottom because it's heavier and would fall to the bottom in the uh, fermentation trough. It then had be aged for a longer period of time at a lower temperature. So it went, it had to be lagered. A lager is a place where you store things and kept cool. So in places like southern France or in Italy, this was just not on. Uh, it was not going to happen because it just got too hot. And beer, when it's being made, is bacteria heaven. They just love the stuff. It's this warm, very nutritious liquid and grow like mad. Uh, so there's high spoilage rates with beer. Even in the 19th century, they were getting, losing 20% of the quality of, of the beer to spoilage commonly. It just got too acetic. And in fact, many brewers sold uh, vinegar on the side. That's what they did with the beer that got infected. So letting beer sit around for a long period of time makes it more susceptible to these kinds of infections. So if you're going to let it sit for a while, then you got to keep it, which we'll do with the bottom fermented yeasts. If you're going to let it sit around for a while, you have to have it protected, uh, you have to have it enclosed, and you have to keep it cold. In warm places, it just won't work. The beer, will, if you let it sit for a while, it's going to get infected. You're, you're going to lose it. So now, of course, uh, beginning in the late 19th century, refrigeration machines were developed. In fact, the, the research was subsidized by brewers because they wanted to have refrigeration machines so they could make this beer with this bottom fermentation. The practice spread from Bavaria, where it was done, well, in the, in the 18th and early 19th century, uh, spread from there to many parts well, all over the world, in fact. So most of the beer that's drunk now, I say, Majority of beer drunk now is made with bottom fermented yeast, but there's still a number of beers that uh, are made with top fermented yeast. Kolsch, which is popular in Cologne and in the Rhineland, oh, um, stouts are typically made with top fermented yeasts. So, do they taste different when they're fermented on the top versus the bottom? Does it affect the taste? Well, if you can tell the difference between a lager and a, a ale, then um, you can, yeah. If you can, then yes, you would say there is a different taste. As now, it has to do with all kinds of other things: the kind of grain used, the quality, the quantity of grains used, any chemicals, any other additives that might be used. Because there are many more now in beers to keep them preserved, to give them the right sized head, to suit certain tastes, because tastes vary in. Uh, Norway, in Western Norway, people like a beer with a lot of hops. 
in Italy, France, much less so. I know we would love to learn more about beer and beer making from Shakespeare's lifetime. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? And this would be in addition to Richard's excellent book on medieval and Renaissance brewing, which we will link to in the show notes for today's episode. Oh, well, um, there's a, a book by Judith Bennett, uh, Ale, Beer and Bre- Brewsters in England, Women's Work in a Changing World. Uh, and she talks about the period up to 1600. And she's interested in the change in breweries. Uh, women used to be very active brewers in the Middle Ages, as I said, but uh, they were they disappeared from the brewing industry in London uh, in the course of the 15th and 16th centuries. I think mostly because the, the scale of brewing just got so much bigger and the population got so much. Population grew, scale of brewing went up. So um, uh, there were fewer women in the trade. There are a number of other reasons too, but uh, but she's very good. There's an article, there's a, a journal called the Brewery History Journal. Uh, and there's an article there by uh, Kirsten Burton in 2013 on uh, industrial brewing in early modern London. So very much in Shakespeare's time. And then another book, Lien Liu, 2016, published a book on immigrants and industries in London and covers exactly Shakespeare's time. And she has a chapter on beer brewing, which is excellent. It talks about uh, the technology, the organization, uh, consumption, production. It's very good. Those are excellent resources. We will link to all of these books and articles in the show notes for today's episode, along with the books by Richard Unger on beer and beer making from Shakespeare's lifetime. So make sure you go there to find the links for those. Now, Richard, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. It is a tough question, of course. (laughs) I don't know. I think, if pressed, I might well take uh, Boccaccio's Decameron. It's uh, from the 14th century, and it's... um, it's really a hundred short stories. He invented the short story. A uh, hundred tales, many of them very funny, many of them a little scurrilous, uh, mostly about people overcoming challenges. So it's, it's varied enough, I think, uh, that I could pick it up and read it again and again and read different parts at different times. I think that's an excellent selection for your Desert Island book. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, as you you can imagine, COVID slowed everything down, but uh, I'm gradually trying to get myself up to speed to um, write a book about uh, the ship uh, from the the Roman Empire uh, down to the end of the Age of Sail in the 19th century. Something I've dabbled in and worked on in bits and pieces over the years and wrote a book about uh, ships in the Middle Ages and Renaissance a long time ago. So I thought I'd go back, revisit it, and see if there were, well, and a lot has been done since uh, since I last uh, wrote that, when I wrote that first book, mostly from archaeology. Um, archaeological investigations have been very extensive. So I'd like to bring it up to date and uh, expand the scope of the earlier work. I will look forward to that coming out. And yes, be very glad that you're able to get back to your work from all of the craziness that COVID has brought all of us, I think. Thank you so much, Richard Unger, for being here and take us through the history of beer and beer making for Shakespeare's Lifetime. This has been a really fun conversation and I'm glad to have you with us. Thank you very much. 
find links to the resources mentioned in today's episode, along with archival images of beer and beer making from Shakespeare's lifetime, packed into the show notes for today's show. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 199. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP199. Find video versions of our podcast, along with documentaries, animated plays, and bonus interviews inside the digital streaming app for That Shakespeare Life at CassidyCash.com slash app. That's CassidyCash.com slash A-P-P. And if you're an educator or history researcher into the life of William Shakespeare and you'd like to take our podcast into your office or classroom with complete lesson plans, printable history guides, and hands-on activity kits, then consider becoming a member of That Shakespeare Life. Members get access to our entire library of hands-on learning activities like crafts and games straight from the life of William Shakespeare. They also get members-only discounts and the entire digital streaming app is included with your membership. Find out more and sign up today at Cassidy cash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. If you enjoy our show, be sure to leave us a comment and rating on your favorite podcast platform and share the show with someone you think might enjoy learning something new about the Bard. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.